Hello and welcome to When Will It End? It's the movie podcast where we watch a whole friggin' series of movies. And I apologize for the strong language. I'm all juiced up. We're closing out a series today. And sometimes these are agonizing to get through. I would say frequently it's not fun to watch a whole series of movies because many of them suck ass. Yeah, this year has been... It's been a little hard. I mean, not in just the general, it's been a really hard year for all sorts of reasons, but this show has been adding on to that a little bit. I think ter- the Terminator series I found to be pretty challenging Yeah, that, at the end of the day. That was a slog. Yeah, um, definitely. The Batman movies were really difficult to get through. I mean, I, we didn't finish one of them. Scary Movie 5, famously, we recorded over it. Um, I mean... It's a little early to do a recap of the year, but I don't know. Maybe like I feel it's like- August. How was that early? That's after the midway point. We're I mean, normally territory. You, I just feel like normally you wait until you know the, the end of the year to do a recap of the year. It's a look back. A look back isn't a recap. It's a look back. All right. Well, then I would like to suggest that I don't think 2020 has been all that bad. Let me let me give you some of the highlights. And that's the show, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Tune in next week. We had. Bad Boys 1, 2, and 3, which were all pure delights. That's how we kicked off the year. That's a great series, yeah. Uh, Scary Movie, you enjoyed Scary Movies 1 through 4. I sort of took a while to get in, but 3 and 4 were fun. Uh, Then we had Blade 1 and 3, which were gems, just with a little poop in the middle of 2. And then we had 9 long, glorious weeks of 8 great movies in a Fast and the Furious franchise. I often long to be back in the Fast and the Furious franchise because that was really uh, the halcyon days of 2020. So, I mean, you know I'm a math guy, okay? I'm an infographics guy, which I proved uh, in our Shaun of the Dead episode. Right, yeah. So you, you, we could do it both ways. But basically, all right, hold on. Um, since the, all right, we got one, two, three. Oh, wait, there was HK in the first part of the year, too? What's what's HK? Sorry, what's her, just her, fucking Harold why and, Harold and Kumar, the HK verse. HK, yes, HK. Everyone fucking. We called it the HK verse when we were doing it. That's months ago. Uh, yeah, that, that, I thought that's sort of how it stays. The HK verse. We all now for the rest of our lives, we're always going to know what the HK verse is. I don't think I've ever used HK verse until that this episode. Was the hardest. You can go back and listen. I don't think I've ever used that. Phrase. No, we actually talked about it on the episode. We had a very hard time even naming it. But um, yeah, I won't even include HK because that was really the end of 2019. But so we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. This is shit. You, 19, you always talk about your commitment to podcasting, and this is the dog 27, shit. 28, 29, the dog 30. roll you roll we have, out. We have a nice 30, 30 weeks. I'm so sorry if you're listening that Charles said that to count to 30. Shut the fuck up! There's 52 weeks in a year. Yeah, I'm sorry I just yelled. I tried to be more like you this episode since you want me to be committed to good podcasting and you usually you just, just counted to 30 yeah That's and then terrible. But i just screamed at you um and then there were one oh my god two three four five why what are you counting just a bad one so i'd say five out of 30 so what's that uh, divide by five, but one out of six. That's not bad. This is this is the the definition of cutting your cutting off your nose to spite your face. Is you trying to prove that I was wrong about it being a tough year by dragging the podcast into you counting things in an awkward manner? Yeah, that's right. Are you proud of yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, that's very sad to me. 
But yes, what I was trying to say before regrettably opening this door hey, you is did that it. this is this series is just a goddamn pleasure to reflect on. Mm. There's so much to dig into here. You know, I was thinking a lot about the you know, we're talking of course about the Cornetto trilogy, the brilliant films by one Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Um and we've made our way to the final of the of the big three. Uh, the World's End, which is a movie that is very near and dear to me. And if if you don't mind, Charles, I'll begin with an anecdote about when I first saw it. I'd love to hear it. You'd love to hear it? I'd love to hear it. Well, let's hope our audience does, too, because uh. here I go. Uh, as uh, we've discussed in prior episodes in the series, very quickly these movies made their way into the timeless pantheon of films you can watch with loved ones or friends over and over and over again. And uh, my, my cousin Charlie and my brother Sam were in town for some gathering of some sort. When did this come out? Hmm. It's 2013, but what time of – this was released in August 2013. Wow, we timed this eerily well. We're an eerie bunch. We're... we're sure an eerie bunch. So about seven years ago this came out. For whatever reason, I had my brother and, uh, and my cousin and I were all in Pittsfield, Massachusetts together. And we had a bit of a, a lad's night, Charles. Hmm. In fact, not one altogether unlike – the Adventure in the World's End, where we drank beer by the pint. We ate pizza. We smoked a marijuana cigarette. We were having a real night of it. And I says to myself, I says, what if we all went, was it to them too? What if we went to go see the new Edgar Wright film? We've so enjoyed Shaun of the Dead. We've so enjoyed Hot Fuzz. And we stroll into the Beacon Cinema, in fact, the very building in which I speak to you from today. That's right. You're still there. Sure am. Haven't left. We sat down. And I would say within five minutes of this movie, I knew it was going to be one of my favorite movies of all time. I think from the the second the introduction, when when, when Primal Scream fades up and we hit the, the main credits, I was like, yep, I'm all in. This is yeah. like just the, the hook of this movie so quickly. And again, as much as I love Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, they don't come close to the kind of momentum that this movie builds up so rapidly. It yeah. just sweeps you off your feet. Well, I think honestly, in a way, this whole these three episodes have been similar because we've been mentioning the world's end over and over again since we started the Cornettaverse, and this is the momentum we're building up to this moment where we are reaching for both of us the pinnacle of this series and sort of the ultimate. We talked about it before. We we've labeled this as like the decoder ring of the Cornettaverse, the the Rosetta Stone. Like I think this if you were having sort of complications of like really understanding or feelings about the other two movies, this just locks everything in place. And you don't, I don't think you even have the other two without this one. And I want to share a quote from Edgar Wright. Well, Charles, uh, it's very comforting by the way, in August, 2020, that you're coughing as much as you are. I just had, it's very this chill. has happened before. It's the peanut butter. I just had some peanut butter. So but again, just to go back to your commitment to podcasting, which has so far involved you in counting weeks of the year mm-hmm. and eating peanut butter before the recording, yeah. this is a contributing to your effort at better podcasting? Well, I mean, I was coughing a little bit off mic. And uh, also, as the editor, I just take them out. And then you're just, you're just complaining about nothing. The point I'm making is that if you're trying to show up ready to play, maybe don't eat peanut butter, which famously... Makes the mouth quite sticky. Okay, so this this is a this is an unfortunate energy to be going into this <laughs> this record because I could tell right from the get go that I was a little late 
you know, I was 15 minutes late today because I was having some some things that I had to deal with. I understand. But Josh that. was on the phone with someone that he had. To, I could hear him. He like made sure to answer so that I could hear that he had to reschedule something to 3:30 instead of 3:15. Made sure to answer. You called me long after the 10 minute warning you gave me. I got a call for work. It was seven. I take the call. Yeah. So, but you, you I mean you could have just let my call go and called me back. But no, you picked up so that I could hear. That you were in the process of rescheduling an appointment because I was late. In an effort to smooth out my professional obligations as well as my desire to record this episode, uh-huh. yes, I took a call okay. with you on camera. It was not to shame you. It's because I had to take a call, Charles. No, no, no. It Some wasn't... of us get calls. Yeah, I never do. I was saying it wasn't to shame me but to make me realize that you are an important award-winning journalist and that I'm sort of the bug that's – crawling around on your desk that you have to swat away you're kind of more like a stick bug because i always think you're not going to show up and then bam there you are you've seen a stick bug with your spindly legs I've yeah you ever been to like bug. a there's a conservatory in western mass with the, the butterfly like the magic butterfly kingdom or whatever the fuck they call it and they've got a lot of mm-hmm. stick bugs there yeah, they're all yeah. really creepy i've never been i should go oh it's wonderful take amy you'll have a blast great well so maybe i just want to I could double down, you know, and I could ruin the energy for this episode. You should. Or or I could offer a, a hand. In, in the COVID time, that's a little scary, but a digital hand of peace and, tranquil- and tranquility to get us through into the next verse. Tranquility. Yeah, which one do you want? I'm going to edit that out too, so now it's just going to sound like you're saying tranquility. No, le- double tranquility. That's good. Um, no, I think uh, much like the protagonists of an Edgar Wright film, we can bumble about, Mm -hmm. have our chuckles, and then also maybe learn a little lesson at the end of the day. Sure. What do you say? All right. All right, then I'm going to... What do you say, bud? I had had an ace up my sleeve, uh, or was it a toad in the hole? But I had something I could have really ruined. It's a toad in the hole. I could have ruined this episode, but I'm going to save that for another episode. No, 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 ruin it. I want this. Do it. This is good now. No, no, you teed me up. All right. Well, uh, what's this? I, I'm so fat. Show me your toad. Okay. You want to see this fucking toad? Yeah, please. Well, you keep. Okay. So you go on and on. A award winning journalist. That's something I hear about. Sorry, every... One second. One second. Hello? The president? Charles, sorry. One second. No, no, no. I, I can't talk now. We could have talked 10 minutes ago, but Charles was late to the record. I'm sorry, the president. No, I. Yes, of course. You're right. Yeah. I'm, it's. Look, I my respect for Charles. I. Oh, you understand. Okay. Thank you. Yes. MAGA 2. Okay. All right. Sorry. Uh, what were you saying? Who is that? Oh, no. Just something for work. Okay. Um, got a work call. That's all. But just, uh, that's, Well, I mean, we could do call this Call for work. We could, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Could do this later if you want. No. No. We've started. I let, Show me your toad. Come on. Uh, this is a pre-toad. Show me that I toad. I do like that you are complaining to me that you get to do a fun, relaxing extracurricular activity while getting paid by your employer for that's just a pre-toad that's like a what a a, a nymph toad no uh what are the little critters that swim around first a tadpole yeah that was my tadpole i just showed you a tadpole i just blacked out for a minute so (laughs) okay we'll we'll move on we'll move on to the okay so you've you've mentioned that you're an award-winning journalist yeah we all know that congratulations you also mentioned repeatedly that you are not only the co-ep of this program but also the producer okay yeah but in the covid times i would like to ask you to rescind that title 
and what? become co-producer. Okay, I am editing the show entirely myself, and also right, produce. You, you enjoy the full credit of editor, but I am and. I am now also co. I am producing my own audio. You are not in my home fiddling with the knobs and ones and zeros, whatever the fuck you call it. I am producing my audio. I do call it fiddling with the ones and zeros. Yeah, I know you do. You do it all the time. That's famously. It's my. It's what I call it. It's what I, it is. What it is. It is what it is. I call it. I call it fiddling with the ones and zeros. So I would like okay. to say that until the end of COVID, you're demoted. Well, not demoted, but just you're co-producer. You're not producer. It feels like a demotion to me. Yeah, it should. But look. By the way. Okay, fair Because enough. you also constantly send me audio with a hissy oh background that I have to fade in and out just so it doesn't... Like, you had the gall the other day because I was doing hard cuts because it's so time-consuming of just cutting out all the fucking horrible audio hiss in your background. You can fade it in and out. It's not a big yeah, deal. I you can know, show you how. I know it's how. It's an elegant fade. I well, just have try it. I have to do it every time you stop speaking, which isn't a lot given how often you ramble on and on, but... It is an extra step in the editing process. Got the fire in your eyes right now. I so rarely see this. Hey, you wanted my toad, man. I told you. I hey, know I'm getting the toad. I can save Full the toad. toad. I can save Full the toad, toad for the no, no, no. next I one. I asked for the toad. I got the toad. All right. Well, I hope you learned. You get the toad you pay for. I learned my lesson. You're right. Charles, I can be conciliatory. I can be the bigger man. I can say, Charles, welcome to being the co-producer of When Will It End? <sighs> This feels good. I am not fiddling with your ones and zeros. No, you never I have. I acknowledge that there's some... Co- I definitely have. Yeah, you past. have been. I'm sorry. That's a total lie. You've been definitely fiddling with... I, mean, I acknowledge my... that there is a room sound. I think it's the fluorescent lights. I'm not entirely sure. I do turn this audio into news heard by thousands. So clearly something about it is working fine. But yes, I understand. You do hard work. You're the editor and full co-producer with me and of course i'm still executive producer mm-hmm. and we know that and that's fine so well, i'm also an i can executive live with that producer, yeah. well right i'm executive producer and i think I mean, maybe i can add on like a story by i'll get story by credits because well, no. story okay. by uh, is fair okay then can i get writer yeah but i get story by anyone can write a story but only one person thinks of the story that's true okay right so i'll take story by you're, we're, we're co-producers. I'm executive producer. You're editor. And I'm executive producer. Yeah. Uh, well, who's to say? Someone's doorbelling my house. Oh, that's so exciting. Uh, I thought that was like uh, you, you thought of a new bit or something. and uh, But no, that's just. No, literally someone's doorbelling my house. diegetic noise for the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just like when you get a phone call. You might get phone calls, sir, but I get doorbells. Well, for me, it's. For work, you know, it's yeah. for work stuff. Mine is so obviously to, not for work, yeah. I wanted to share a quote. Hmm. I don't know if I should. I, the other people are home. I'm not going to answer that. You sure? Yeah, I mean. I well, mean, it's a principal thing for you now. Yeah, at this point, I'm in the basement. They're on the second floor, maybe even the first floor. So why is it so loud in your basement then? Because it is, it is ringing well, uh, very clearly. Because that is the doorbell. The doorbell is routed straight to the basement? Straight to the basement. Maybe no one else can hear is it. Is that a Boston thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's because all, like, the people were forced to the underground. Wh- what people when? <laughs> uh, just look it up, man. Just Google it. Boston subterranean dwellers doorbell. That should get you the right wiki page. I don't think that's a real Wikipedia. If I'm being honest it's, with you. It's, yeah, it's, it's I a joke. I made, yeah, I just made that one okay. up. Yeah. You're having a bit of fun. And after you got viciously angry with me, it's nice to see you joke again. I mean, I learned my lesson too. 
That was you. You just gurgled. I did just gurgle. I heard that so clearly. I'm doorbelling. What is going on over there? It's like a fucking Foley factory exploded. Doorbells, gurgles, peanut butter smacks, coughing. Jesus Christ. This is the era. This is your co-production era. Wow. This is going to be fun. This is like. You know, you you had an out. You had an out before. You could be like, well, you know, look, the producer I work with is a real piece of shit. (laughs) I mean, I do say that. But yeah, now it's it's also my. Oh, my God. I just did it again. And these are not getting picked up on mic, though, is the problem. So now we're just talking about. The first one I heard vividly over Facebook Messenger. The mic is here. Right next to my belly, my bell bell. So just for the re- for the listener at home, Charles is pointing to his belly as though to explain where it is, which was very helpful. Right. Yes. By the way, if you're wondering where his belly is, you, whatever you're imagining, it's probably... Okay, well, there's... Yes, now he's... <laughs> we should be vlogcasters. Vlogcasters? A, little, a blogcaster is just the term. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I want to share a quote with you from Edgar Wright. Um, the, the verge.org.com, excuse me, in 2013 interviewed the great Edgar Wright and asked him the following question. You've said you didn't intend to make a trilogy when you wrote Sean, but it's definitely become one along the way. What ideas and themes have linked these films together and how did you try to tie them off? To which the good Edgar Wright responded, I think the thing is that in all three movies is the theme of the individual versus the collective. You know, the idea of standing up against conformity, growing up, you know, taking responsibility. And then also the danger is a perpetual adolescence. You know, like in Sean, Sean has to grow up and be a man, be a hero. In Hot Fuzz, Nicholas Angel has to dumb down to be a badass and has to meet Danny Butterman somewhere in the middle so so they become the perfect duo. And in this film, it's more of a cautionary tale of like, you know, one character desperately wanting to turn back the clock and be 18 again. And when he does, all hell breaks loose. That seems to be, again, we talked before about like the intention of the author and what it actually hits home for the audience. What do you, what do you, I want to hear. Yeah. You shared that quote with me. What are, what are your thoughts on that quote? Well, I want to follow up with another quote from another Edgar Wright. Whoa. Oh, I got multiple quotes. Oh my God. All right. I am of course an executive producer of the show. So it's important for me to bring that energy to the record. Uh, here's Edgar Wright. I think it's okay to get nostalgic over music or movies from your youth, but this film is about the dangers of trying to recreate former glories. Gary King is stuck in the past, which is bad enough, but when he actively tries to regress his friends through alcohol, all hell breaks loose. He loves saying that, Edgar. He all does. hell breaks loose. Wow. The cost, it's, it's, a, it's becoming I mean, a trend. It's, it's more of a robot breaking loose, mm, really. Yes, yes, if you think about it. The cautionary tale in the movie should be that you should never, ever want to go back because the past is a disaster. Interesting. This is... This is weird because this isn't what I really get out of watching The World's End at all. I mean, it's obviously like the main point, the main superficial plot level metaphor and like deconstruction of the character. But to me, it it hits about all sorts of other different things. Not really. That's not, I don't know. It's weird that he's like really focusing on this regression idea. Well, I actually find it quite interesting because I I was thinking about this movie during the COVID-19 era. And that's now in which is as we speak yeah. this very moment. Wow. Um, what we're seeing is this generational divide where I feel like, and, and I'm not saying this is strictly on the shoulders of older folks because obviously a lot of younger people are behaving like complete fucking assholes. Mm-hmm. But I think there was a part of this process where a lot of people I know were having a really difficult time communicating with their boomer parents about COVID because they couldn't really seem to wrap their minds around the fact that A, it could happen to them. B, they might have to give up some of their freedom or sense of individuality to be a part of combating the the, the disease on a broad level. And, and just like in general, and maybe think about like, you know, this is something my mom has talked about, how like 
when people reflect on the 60s and 70s, they often think about this era of individualism and freedom where they broke away from conformity and everyone became like, you know, their own person in the face of, of you know, we're putting behind the suburbs and the gray suits and we're throwing on our paisley and our denim and taking LSD and following the Grateful Dead on tour for 15 years and falling in love with a woman named Silverfish and having a child named Moonchild and, and things of that nature. And when, when mom, you like look this at... This is your mom's life story? Or no, she was no, just... Not no, not at all. No. Okay, okay. Sorry, I just got a little confused. Well, she was talking about how, you know, when she like left her hometown and her family, she she left. She really left. She grew up in, in, a, in a small town in, in Oregon and first went to Portland, Oregon, the, you know, the, the big old big city, Portland, Oregon, and then went to New York City and D.C. and Hawaii and, and ended up in Massachusetts, just never went back to Oregon. And she talked about how with me, who like just I just finished living with my parents for almost three and a half years in my late yeah. 20s. Um, how how much she appreciated how close our family was and how sad it was ultimately that the doctrine of individuality ultimately meant that like she didn't have much of a relationship with her parents for over there her mom her dad died when she was young for a long time like she you know called her mom like once a month or something for like long stretches or if that you know or you know it was interesting to hear someone from that generation talk about how ultimately this thing that had seemed so important did have a pretty significant impact on making them isolated and making them separated from the things that matter to them and making them maybe regret tearing away from, from the the things that were familiar as much as they did. It was interesting to think about that. Yeah. I mean, I think this movie, it seems to just sort of be the ultimate sort of expression of I, this, I guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around this idea that Sean is like has to become bigger than himself and become a hero because for me he doesn't. He regresses. Like that to me is the point of Sean, as we talked about, is that he doesn't. I, maybe maybe regresses. I don't think yeah, it's no, regression. Right. I think he it's, fights to defend where he is and right. then goes back to that. It's actually I have another quote on that coming up. But yeah, Get his excited. heroism isn't in fighting for good or fighting for what's right. It's fighting for what's comfortable. And I think sort of that is why change is so hard to do right now is because people, the people that I know and most people in this country are at least comfortable. And then there's extremes on both ends where people are incredibly uncomfortable and dying. And then there's people that are running the world and have no idea what money means because they can do whatever they want. But a significant chunk of this, even if you're not doing great, you still have your comforts. You have a house, you have a car, you have a job, you have ways that if those things were to go away, you would suddenly really like be back into like a revolutionary era where revolution always comes when people lose those comforts and now have nothing else to lose. And I think that's why America really doesn't change too much is because we really haven't through all this shit had a large percentage of our population lose those comforts. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, that the idea is that like, when we're when people are sold a doctrine of be yourself and be an individual and then you're put in a situation where you really have to conform to a, to group thinking and you really have to join a pack because that's the only way you're going to survive something i mean it's the way like capitalism has destabilized political movements where you know only really mass 
group effort coming together, solidarity, those are the things that like the labor movement gave us. Like all these things that we rely on, like weekends and eight hour workdays, X, Y, and Z, that all that only came about not because a series of individuals made an individual choice, but because people banded together to protect those shared values and those shared yeah. resources. And then even those values are also constructions of capitalism to make us think that we won by putting away a significant portion of our life towards something that has nothing to do with us. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. It sucks. So so in this movie, you know, you, you, the, the whole climax of the film is, is, you know, Gary and his friends drunkenly defending the right to be dumb pieces of shit. Yeah. And, and the aliens are like, yeah, all right. Well, I, you're, you'd much rather pretend to be free than make a sacrifice. Right. And I'm not saying it's good that everyone becomes a blank. And obviously, I think the message about conformity is a problem. But I think that that, that sour dynamic is the core of this whole trilogy. And I actually have some evidence to back mm. it up a little bit. Yeah. Well, actually, I remember I was watching the Sean with the commentary, and they mentioned Theory 78, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, as a huge influence on Shaun of the Dead. And that sort of like when I first saw that movie, one of my main responses to it was, why are why is everyone so afraid of becoming an a, what do they call it a snat a snatched snatched that sounds sort of weird why why do they why is everyone so afraid of losing the thing that they think they have and becoming this new version of themselves which is productive happy no one fights wars ended poverty's ended hunger's ended and yet because you have to change and conform to a new idea that scene is, nope, we're going to stick to all this awful shit that we have in our lives because it's a new thing that I don't understand. Well, I mean, the, the myth of nostalgia, like the, the construct of conservatism, the like the, the the like authenticity is like the most useless idea in the universe because authenticity is, is a construct that is always renegotiated. There is no original yeah. anything, and that's fine. It's like when people are like, oh, Hollywood with all the remakes, everything is a fucking – it's – chill it doesn't matter like the basic fundamental elements of storytelling those are pretty they've been around for a very long time it's not like you know so i think people there's often this very conservative idea of like if you're changing from your authentic self that's somehow a betrayal when it's like no like change is normal you know progressing in a direction is what people who are engaging with the world end up doing like you know you can't really be a silo forever it's not really how anything has ever worked it's not real yeah it's made up yeah and, and like, I, I think you know the fact that 1984 has become something that that conservatives now quote as much as liberals like that used to be a liberal text now it's become a conservative text because the whole idea of like you know a jackboot on the fate like you know ultimate conformity and you know it's like now that's an idea that conservatives are more afraid about than liberals broadly because I think a lot of people on the left are like, oh, no, we actually do need to work together to achieve these things because, you know, in in the, the panopticon of capitalism where we each have our own cell under constant surveillance, our choices mean even less than nothing. It is. A, it's a very complicated issue, which is why I think I don't even know that like when I hear Edgar Wright talk about his movies – they sort of seem as alien to what I feel in some ways just because it is like it's his personal feelings about what he wants to talk about that then now mesh with my personal feelings of these same ideas and the importance of uh, like, yeah, obviously this movie is about a man who is stuck. But to me, the sadness is like we've, I've talked about this as a friendship trilogy and like, this is the moment where in the first two movies, 
one the first one he's sort of like does it all by himself he's just here everyone else either dies or honestly conforms to his idea of a utopia and then the second one he and his friend sort of one dumbs down to join at the same level to become friends and like understand each other better and this one it's about a man that has really given up on mutual understanding and so he's he's taking that individuality and regression to the extreme of not even being able to understand anyone around him. Yeah, and it's amazing because he drags the entire world into his selfish fantasy. Yeah. So I want to share with you this. This is one of the most revealing things I found in researching these movies. So this is uh, from an interview with TheVerge.com. Again, this is Simon Pegg. Sometimes reestablishing the status quo can be to the detriment of the film. If you mess everything up and then return everything back to its place, when you leave the cinema, you feel very comfortable. If you don't, then everyone's a bit... They're going to think about it a lot longer. If the cozy world you live in isn't put back together again, you're going to ask, why not, for a lot longer than you would if it's a big happy ever after. None of our films have happy ever afters. They have controversial happy ever afters. Sean and Ed at the end of Shaun of the Dead, it's a weird little utopia they're living in. Nick Frost, it's, per- it's perfect for Ed. Simon Pegg, it's perfect for Ed. Edgar Wright, he's clinging on to his dead friend. Simon Pegg, he hasn't moved on. At the end of Hot Fuzz, it's this weird little fascist utopia they're living in, you know, where there's this black-loved overseer who's basically beating up hippies by the recycling bins. It's not as idyllic as it kind of seems to be. And with this one, it's probably the happiest thing that we have, ironically. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's it's weird that he also used the word utopia. But yeah, it's like when I talked about it last time, it sort of felt like Hot Fuzz was a prequel to Shaun of the Dead. And then this one seems like the direct continuation of like a Shaun character realizing that he doesn't have to change at all and everyone he can like sort of just force everyone to live in his fantasy world and this is what happens you have friends that don't trust you and don't like you and don't want to be around you and and really just you ruin everybody's lives by being this really selfish prick well right and then there's another part of the movie and and edgar wright talks about this as well that i think is very interesting which is the idea of like homecoming and the idea of alienation and the idea of like what it means to have a relationship with the past so like you know, he talks a lot about these interviews, how, you know, you, you leave home for a while and you come back and you feel disconnected. You feel like no one remembers you. You feel like, who was I of this core foundational part of my life I have no relationship with anymore? Yeah. You know? So in this movie, they, like, go back to a place that is being colonized in this eerie inv- sci-fi invasion way by aliens. But at the same time, they recolonize it mm-hmm. by being – Complete like by, by by regressing back to being irritating teenagers just trying to have a laugh and that's reclaim a cool their idea. Own. So the the fact that they're they're like it's this battle over nostalgia where it's like when you go back to a place that you used to know and love and it's changed, you know, does reclaiming it for yourself is that noble or is that like insane and selfish and, and sick? You know? Yeah, and I think sick is also a good word to end on because ultimately, like you can, I've been sort of I think hard on Simon Pegg's characters and I realize I'm doing that and I don't really want to because this one really shows that he isn't well and he's in a in his own way he feels bad about what he does but he has no no way to change it other than to try these desperate attempts to force everyone to just go along for his ride because that's the only thing he understands and it's really it's sad. useless arguing <laughs> yeah the scene where he like has to confront his scars and he never really even does but like i think that's one of the best parts of this whole trilogy is the way that you can see you can see the extent to which Simon Pegg's character avoids reality 
to make sure that his reality can continue onward. Well, it's like it's like he's sacrificing his future. He slits the throat of his future and his friend's future to give them what he thinks they want. Yeah. Like he his like corrosive obsession with his past. And I think that's what makes the movie revolutionary because he really learns nothing. Gary King learns less than nothing. He is empowered through his selfishness to fully commit to being to living in a fantasy. And then that's fucked up. Like it's great. And like I, I think it's 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 more daring as a filmmaker to give you this like queasy, strange finale where everyone gets what they want theoretically, and it turns out that they had to destroy the world to do that. Yeah, and I, that's the that's the interesting thing is that correct me if I'm wrong, because I didn't actually end up rewatching this one just because I had seen it twice in the last three months. But uh Nick Frost's character makes it up with his wife and the tall guy starts dating um martin freeman's sister is that right yeah i mean again everyone basically gets what they want right Nick frost character who was what separated gets back with his wife and they have this sort of idyllic weird post-apocalyptic life or something martin freeman continues to be a headless uh real estate agent just like he was before yeah uh yeah so it's it's sort of showing that even though uh gary king's care like gary king is the extreme Every single character in this movie is hoping for some form of regression to be happy. Or like rather than Nick Frost realizing that the relationship with his wife is over and he should see that as a point of moving forward and growth and learning and find someone else that he can be with, he regresses back to going with her. Uh, what's his, the long guy? He uh, regresses to wanting to date his like the hot, the one he had the hots for in high school. Why are you like, calling Patty Considine the long guy? I don't know. He just seems he's long. not that long. I love Patty Considine, but calling him long is I'm not sure where you're getting that. He's just longer than everybody else. Like Martin Freeman, Nick Frost, and Simon Pegger seem like they're shorties. Do you mean he's like thin or lanky? He's five eleven. I am the same height as Patty Considine. I'm also the same height. Well, how tall is a uh, Martin Freeman? He's got to be a little shorter. Yeah. I mean, yeah. famously played Bilbo Bilbo. Well, that was all through wizardry it doesn't five seven five seven okay how about an eddie marson okay god damn it i'm definitely the producer again because i'm doing oh shut up production has nothing to do with this you're researcher yes it does you You... don't even know what production is (laughs) what have you produced yeah make Uh, a monkey noise you idiot i produced a big fat shit this morning i actually took a big old shit today too yeah good production we're co-producers come on how can we not be well i mean i am ep so i guess i can live with that Eddie Marson, how tall is that man? I'm looking it up. You keep saying his name wrong. I search Eddie Marson, and it's not that. It's Marson, 5'9". Oh, he's taller than Martin Freeman. That's got to be good for him. Oh, and then how tall is a peg? I don't know. 5'10". How about that? Out of the group of men, I do have to say that Patty is the longest. You keep saying long. I don't think that's traditionally how height is explained in conversation. Uh, I'm always measured lying down. The doctor's like, all right, time to take your height. And then he tells me to get on the 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 meat packing. Your doctor table. measures your height horizontally? Every time you since lie I lie down? Since I was he born. He measures out, gets some tape out. Mm-hmm. You got to maybe get a new doctor. Yeah. Is what I'm learning from this conversation. I am sure I do, yes. Um, but anyway, I don't remember why I was talking. Oh, yeah, the long man, he regresses to dating... Uh, 
Martin Freeman's sister who also regresses by dating him. Like everything is still born out of the idea of high school. And it's it's like it's even though they all win in the end because Gary King gets to Gary King gets to like go around with his band of robots. Uh, no one wins. They all their lives suck, and all their lives could be so much better. And they refuse to accept that, and they all ended up basically killing themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, once again, the movie's called The World's End, and that's what they welcome. By the end of the, by the, they allow Gary to suck them into this nightmare. I think we've covered the thematics here. Can, I, can we get into some of the fun details? Yeah, and before we do, I just want to point out that I don't know that this is all Gary King's fault. You just said they get sucked into Gary King. I think he is the instigator, but I do think that all of them, and I think maybe what Edgar Wright is talking about is that each one of us has the urge to call it quits and feel like life is too hard and wouldn't it be simpler if I just didn't have to work so hard to grow and I could just stop getting so long all the time and just go back to being short. Sorry, that didn't really... I don't think that's true. I don't think this is about being short. I'm just kidding. I was saying going back to each time when you were, you know... I was, I'm just joking. What well, you're talking it was, about it is it was like a bad potentiality. Okay. I'm sorry. I mean, that was a stupid to way to put seriously, it. Just, yeah, you're not producer anymore. I'm demoting This you. is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, you can't take away bad. my toad. No, a producer does so much you wouldn't possibly understand. No, you can have the toad back. I'm giving you back the toad. You brought the toad want, out from the hollow. No, that was toad your was toad. Back that was your hollow. toad. No, I no. Was you said you had a toad in the hollow. That's not how this works. You can't retroactively make it my toad in your No, it was never mine. It was up. You, was you said your, it was yours. Yes, you because you it gave your it to me. No, you, you're, that's a fiction you're grafting onto your You your, gave your me the minds of the toad. You're humiliating yourself in front of the audience right now. They heard this. They knew what was going on First long of all, before. I called it rewrote history an ace up my sleeve. And tried to make sleeve. this absolute fantasy. Right, and then you said, or a toad my hollow. And I said, well, let's pull your toad out. And you said, yes, I'll pull my toad out. I'm going to re-listen re- re- to this episode, let me tell you. I'm probably going to forget about this conversation Shortly after At it's done, three three fifteen, <laughs> just about. Yeah, but anyway, my point my point is that yes, you said it was like Gary King. I think is a seductive person that sort of gets it all going, but it wouldn't work if everyone didn't have this sort of need inside of them to just sort of give up and want to go back to the way things used to be. That's why America elected our our good orange man. Well, I mean, I think that the connection is not lost on me that like people. Being like, we can recreate the glory days. Like, right. it's apocalyptic. That attitude is a denial of the future. That attitude is a rejection of progress and a rejection of change. And, and yeah. it, it is apocalyptic. It, it, like, so, I mean, the kind of, like, messianism that always accompanies ethno-nationalists like Trump of people who – they want a civil war. They want some confrontation where – their old familiar ideas will smash these foreign alien things and, you know, it'll all revert back to the, and, and, and what you're saying is you want the world to end because the world is change. This things is, constantly change. This movie is so beautiful because it's not a happy ending. It's a, it's a false happiness. Just like the other two movies have been too. This is like one of the most seductive, like it's all three of these movies are hilarious. The cast is so perfect at everything they do. And then they use that to fully satirize not only the genres that they're working in, but also the world that we live in. And this is why these movies, I I could watch this over and over again, because it really does speak on so many levels to what it's like to be a person. Kiss on the lips to you. You just chef kissed your own thing there. No, that was to Edgar. 
Oh, to Edgar, yes. Yeah, that's for you, Edgar. You were looking right at me, so I was confused for a minute. We're like, having a conversation. I usually look at the I person know I'm talking to. But but when you chef's kiss without context, I was like, is, are you that for you, for me? Eh, not for Edgar. Okay. It's Edgar. I mean, Edgar. I do think that this is the marvelous climax of the movies and uh, of, the, of the trilogy. So I want to get into the craft in this movie. Yeah. Because we, t- we talked I, – I was very excited in past episodes about this film because, you know – for a guy obsessed with details and rhyming jokes and all these little things that create a surprisingly dense cinematic universe, this movie goes above and beyond in so many ways. So the structure of the film is brilliant, and I, I love shit like this where they want to go back and relive this this uh, pub crawl through their hometown. And there are 12 bars in that pub crawl, or pubs, I suppose you'd call them, in, in old and jolly old, uh, the old in in Britain town, England, the the island with in, the queen, England. yeah, the Queen Island, the Queen's Island, they call it. Uh, okay, so the first pub is called the First Post. Makes sense, right? Yeah. the The interior of the old familiar, the second pub, is exactly the same as the first post, the old familiar. In the third pub, the famous cock, Gary King, is finally recognized as his band teenager self, the, the titular famous cock. They all get into their first fight and work together at the Cross Hands, the fourth pub. Wow. At the Good Companion, they're all acting like they're happy except for Gary. So a little uh, bit of the old cleverness there. Hip, hip, hip. And that's four sad masks and a happy one on the logo. Uh, the drug dealer, Reverend Green, is met in the Trusted Servant. The bitchy twins are met in the two-headed dog. At the mermaid, the characters are tempted to their downfall by beautiful women. They fight off a swarm of enemies at the beehive. At the king's head, Gary King makes a last stand and decides to continue his journey without anyone else's help. A car is driven through the hole in the wall, leaving a hole in the wall. And the events that transpire at the world's end lead to the end of the world. That's pretty incredible, Edgar. Another... A chef's kiss for you. A little kiss for you. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, the clothing of the of the characters foreshadows what happens to them. Peter and Oliver wear blue. They later become blanks. Stephen and Sam wear red, foreshadowing they become a couple. Gary dresses up in the same outfit as his teenage self as an homage to a way a soldier might suit up if we're going into battle or committing suicide. Okay, IMDb trivia person. That was a little bit of pepper on that one. Uh, yeah, this. I mean, honestly, I appreciate this is why i appreciate that i never noticed this thing because this is sort of the edgar wright shit that is starting to bother me why i think baby driver is basically if that were made fully visible and the only thing that were of any interest to him as a filmmaker it seems like so i like that he kept it more hidden so that i didn't have to pay attention to it because like i know that he's happy making the movie and then i don't have to be inundated with all these aggressive details of look look how much i am setting this up for you well but again also the opening narration of their childhood adventure is literally what happens later in the movie which i love they set yeah. it up perfectly kind of like total I, recall yeah and i do but like I, I hear you that it's like in 1917 the shtick with the camera to me became quite distracting where i was so distracted by the artifice of the single shot motif that it was a distraction. It was annoying. Right. Similarly, in Baby Driver, it's aesthetic, it, the aesthetification is to such a degree that it's to the detriment of everything else about it. And then I'll, I'll bring up like uh, Snyder's Watchmen, where like if he had spent more time, like he, he crammed every set with details from the book, but then he didn't do anything with them. 
So what that means to me is that he felt comfortable making the movie because it was being true to what he wanted, but he wasn't going overboard by saying, look at that thing. That's from the book. Look at that. thing. That's from the book. And Edgar Wright has that sensibility here where he's like, takes his time to create all of this, but then doesn't focus on it and really just tells a story. And I think that's really why it so, works so well is because he's building this huge world and then just giving us a small part of it unless we wanted to like freeze frame every shot and be like, oh, look at that in the background. Look at that. Well, I mean, what you're saying is, you know, the the form needs to complement the function. Yeah. And in this movie, I think it's the one of the most successful, given how deep he goes into the form. I mean, there's so many fucking amazing things in the trivia section that I love so much. Uh, when the town is first seen from the top of the hills, the characters drive past. Gary King remarks that you get a good look at the colors because they're going to paint the town red. At the end of the movie, we get the same shot. The town is now red and on fire. Um Early in the film, Oliver calls his sister Sam and asks her if she's lost on the ring road again. Later in the movie, she's late because she's indeed lost on the ring road. Uh, they say that they can't make calls out of the, bu- the pub because of the network. Later in the movie, the alien force, is turns out it's called the network. So he, the fact that he can litter in these things that actually make it feel so rich, it's just sick as fuck. Yeah, and I think it's easy for him to do because they're not really – not easy. I'm just saying like – it doesn't have any effect on the story or anything. It's just like it's it's fun and it's it makes sort of the it's more of like a jokes, a series of jokes that they're funny if you see them and they're not important if you don't. And to sort of bring this back to Baby Driver, I think you in order to like Baby Driver, you had to like that joke because that's all it was was a series of Edgar Wright setting up shit that he thought was fun and putting it on a, a screen for you. And that was it. His story didn't match the level of detail, or here, the story exceeded the level of detail. Right, and you're right. It would feel extraneous if it didn't add this level of obvious love to right. the production. Yeah. And the, the fact that you, you can imbue... When you make something this detail that doesn't feel busy, it's just a fucking... It's a splendor... It's like a splendorous thing. Yeah. And obviously we, we get that, you know, the doubled up shots we get in Shaun of the Dead. He loves doing that. It's probably the first most famous version of the, the now famous Edgar Wright. We're going to do the same thing all over again, but a little different, which I love. But again, this is this feels like all of the ideas of those first two movies where he combines the, you know, horde of others, be they zombies, in this case aliens, with the coming back to your hometown of Hot Fuzz. It, it just feels like the sum of those two movies – it exceeds even that. It's such a fucking good movie. I can watch it anytime. I think it's perfect. It's so goddamn good. And it does that thing where I wouldn't think that Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz were part of a trilogy until having seen this one. And I know I've sort of said that a few times already, but it is true. It's like the connection is, yeah, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg are in it and they're friends and it's funny and it's all by the same director. But this, as you said, like the idea of the town in Hot Fuzz versus the others in Shaun of the Dead don't really connect until you see the way the nostalgia town and the others all sort of combine into one idea in The World's End and really just brings everything together. And I also like that, you know, Nick Frost playing against type for much of this movie until one of the most glorious transformations oh in my film God, history. Yeah. It's great to like see Nick Frost come do something completely different in this movie and have Simon Pegg be the sloppy idiot. And then, yeah, I mean, when he when he decides to break his teetotaling habit and pounds the shots before, again, what I think is my favorite fight in movies ever, um, 
after yeah. the, Pierce, the Pierce Brosnan talk. Uh, God, this movie fucking kicks so much ass. A few more things I want to get out there. I just I think everyone needs to hear this and, and not be like me and read trivia pages forever. But just a few wonderful things from this. Early in the film, uh, they're talking about the Three Musketeers, which Gary said five Musketeers. Uh, and then he says, I think they missed the trick only having three because then they'd have five and two could have died. And they'd still have three left. Later, two of them die and there's only yeah. three left, which is just delightful. It's both a funny joke and yet another way to weave together the intentionality into every element of this into a complete whole, which is so cool. Josh, you love this and I love watching you love this. But I mean, the, the fact that like, I love art that is just a celebration of creativity where like it just seems like everything about it is ecstatic and joyous. Yeah. And this is that movie for me. Which is funny because the movie is so sad and desolate in its themes and story, yet the the actual act of artistic expression is exuberant. So it's just, it is. And I think that's why these are so successful. As I said, like they're hilarious and they're so accessible and I could watch them anytime I want because on the one hand, they're very feel good. But on the other hand, they're ultimately an expression of how fucked we are. And like you're talking about typecast, like Simon Pegg goes beyond anything that I've seen him do in this from before and after this movie. I've never seen him do anything like this. This is the saddest he'll ever be. And it works so well. He's running around. He's sprinting around being this like on the surface, happy, friendly guy. But he's yeah, he's suicidal maniac. But, but but more to the point, it's like you have this guy who's like, I'm a goth nonconformist from the 80s. And then when he reemerges to do it again, it's this extreme version of conservatism. And yes, in that climactic, dramatic moment where he's like, I, I tried to kill myself because I have nothing. The only thing I have are these memories. And I yeah. will sacrifice everything for that. It's It's great acting. It's riveting. It's heartbreaking. It's disturbing. I think maybe – that weird – as you pointed out, it's strange that something that I think is so ecstatic is about something so diseased and sad. But like this is sort of the essence of life. Like as you get older, it's like what do I have to look forward to? Are my best days behind me? You know, How do I think about a future where I'm not the person that I wanted to be at my most impressionable, my most enthusiastic? And you know, I, I think the fact that he brings that energy to such a huge question, it, it comforts me that people out there are thinking about these things. And mm. it comforts me more to the point that a lot of movies, you know, find a saccharine way to, to like, make that, that kind of, like, I, I think a lot of, there, there's, you know, almost every Adam Sandler movie for, like, a huge stretch was like, you know what? All you really need to be was, like, a dumb fuck. And, and it turns out just being stupid is awesome and hell yeah. And I love I, – I fucking love Adam Sandler. I'm not – I like – I love that about those movies. But, yeah. you know, the fact that this is the same general idea but, like, it isn't about, look, man, you got to loosen up and have a little fun. It's like, no, if you, like, drag yourself backwards, you're going to literally destroy the idea of a future entirely. And what, like, what are the real stakes of that? That is a huge question. It deserves that level of inquest, and it gets it in this movie. Yeah. And then even, like, it is for some people, like Gary King, the idea of not having a future is a happy ending. It isn't even judging in their characters, which is why earlier I was like, I don't want to be that harsh on him, because it isn't about he's wrong. This is just the way he is. This is what his life is and honestly what most people's lives are. And it's very scary to challenge the future because we have no idea what's there. Right. He, he time travels. He goes to his own future, hates it, and then creates the entire world around a, 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 some effort to go back in time. Yeah. It's amazing. So this is back, this is back to the future trilogy then. This is part of that trilogy? 
I'm in a group chat where one of the guys really wants to watch Back to the Future, and I'm like, I'm, I think I'm good. I've- I rewatched the whole trilogy uh, while I was at work. It's not good. Uh, I'm, yeah, that's fine. I don't it care. Is- I sure, I'm fine. I, mean, I don't, I don't, I don't ever need to see three. Certainly, I never need to see again. The movie sucks ass. It sucks. Having rewatched them, it is baffling how much time is spent. Like the main joke of the movie is. He's in 1956 or whatever. Like, I would say 30% of of the running time is a joke about how he's in the in the past. It really sucks. But what doesn't suck are our MVPs. Hold on. Before we get to the MVPs. Because you have to go. Okay. All right. We're, we're, we're doing fine. We're doing fine. Hey, man. You're, you're more, at work. You're more stressed than I am about this. You're at work. I, I have all afternoon. So just as long as... You have time to do what you want to do. You don't have to keep stressing them at work. I'm doing a good job balancing my work-life balance, okay? It's going fine. It's going fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks great. Okay. Still got that same thing behind you. What, the the soundproofing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, your one it's panel. It's not going anywhere, buddy. No, nope. One panel? Are you joking? Wait, that's new. Yeah, we, because my fucking Whoa. neighbor showed up. We, you got I it. now live in like a padded cell. Okay, the circular multi-level set at the end of the movie where Gary and Andy end up uh, confronting the network, which is Bill Nye again, which is great. That is the same set from Alien 3. Whoa, yes. Oh. Which is so fucking cool. I, we are big Alien 3. Well, I'm a big Alien 3 I'm fan. A big, yeah. I, I, okay, we're on the same page about that. I love that so much. Yeah, I either is my that. first or second favorite Alien movie, depending on how recently I've seen them. <laughs> Wait, what's it's, in contention? The original? The, the first one, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can watch the first one any second of the day. Right. So. They're both, they're very different movies. They're both perfect. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that's, um, I must be so fun for Edgar Wright. Cause like he obviously loves, like he loves Romero. He loves the dead movies. And like to be able to shoot the ending of one of his movies in an iconic set. Well, maybe it's not even that iconic because most people really hate the third one, but like for him, I could feel like. That would be amazing, like almost a dream to be able to shoot something in his movie that has some significance in another franchise. Well, then also, you know, with Pierce Brosnan, talk about franchises. He's got, he, this is the second Bond he's worked with. Who is the first Bond? Timothy Dalton. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. Also, Simon Pegg and Eddie Morrison are both in Mission Impossibles. Yeah. Some fun franchise overlap. I don't know if we have time to do this on the episode but we do have to figure out what we're filling up september and october with well i told you what i want to do just the other day we'll, get say, that. we'll do that off mic. i'll bleep it out what did you say that thing i texted you oh yeah that's only three right but there's so many spinoffs <laughs> wait you think we should do if we do the di- eight weeks of the direct videos <laughs> i mean wow i mean <laughs> i'm just gonna have to bleep that out too yeah Okay, let's get to MVPs here because this is actually a really, really tough one for me. This is very hard. I don't know what to do. Here's um, you're going to go Simon Pegg for the third movie in a row, I'm pretty sure. Well, I did Nick Frost last movie. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, Here's the thing. Simon Pegg might be the MVP of this movie simply because I think it's the, his best performance ever. I I mean, yeah, I'm going to just – I'm gonna just, yeah, he, he gets my MVP for this. I think this is his best acting job and it's his the best movie and – Again, sort of like why I gave them to the previous two. He is the central role. If he w- if this were fucked up in any way, uh, it wouldn't work. And I know that's sort of like that's not always why I choose MVPs, but 
in this case, this is he is a powerhouse, and he like he wins this role. Uh, he's he's the MVP of this this movie. No, I, I mean I totally agree. If, if if he doesn't work in this, none of like it really falls apart, and it's and it, it can't. It seems like this was a really intense movie for him, and um. He just slam dunks it. It's also it's fucking hysterical. It's so fucking funny. We've been focusing He's, on how like the form is brilliant and how the message is so compelling and interesting, but it's hysterical. And and Simon Pegg is the funniest part of it. He is, yeah. He's he yeah. He's just, he's hilarious. The way I don't know how he like he is moving at a pace that is unlike the other two movies. He is like just the fastest steamroller I can imagine, just bulldozing through lines that. I couldn't even memorize and he's just rattling shit off in a way that is perfect. Yeah. He's fantastic. Which is sort of, it's, it's hard, it's hard to choose. I mean, it's, it's, this is the most boring MVP picks for me because I'm probably just going to pick Simon Pegg for the series MVP because I picked him for two out of the three anyway. And I don't like, but I, I do like, especially having, you know, being a big fan of space and being a big fan, big fan of all of these, I can't give it to Edgar Wright cause he's not in the movie. But like this is like seeing all the cameos of like everyone who is in space, who's been in all these movies the whole time. This is basically Simon Pegg's trilogy, just as much as Edgar Wright's. And I feel his presence throughout the whole thing. And I think I really just have to give it to him. I mean, it definitely is a huge mantle to take on representing like the undeveloped man child in a, in a, or the emotionally unavailable in, in, in hot fuzz. Like it's really hard to do what he did over these three movies. And I guess, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I, I wish I had some fun contrarian take on it to zest up the end of the series, but I think you're right. Like he really is the, the, the guiding light through all of this. And his versatility is pretty dramatic because the three characters are all quite different and all of them are fully realized. And yeah, as much as it's Simon Pegg, you don't really feel like you're watching just Simon Pegg across the three performances. Like Nick Frost obviously is Nick Frost. And between Ed and Danny, you're kind of getting shades of Nick Frost, which I'm not complaining about. It's delightful. Um, but yeah, Pegg really loses himself into all three roles. And, you know, each is kind of more iconic than the last in, in their own way. Um, yeah, it is sad that, I mean, obviously they're all rich and they're fine, but just for me wanting to watch more of their movies, like Nick Frost has sort of just evaporated. I haven't seen him really in anything other than maybe like some voice acting it looks like and some uncredited, like, yeah, he just, I don't know. He just didn't go anywhere, which is sad. And then Simon Pegg had a pretty rough middle part of his career, right? Where he like tried to do stuff and it didn't quite land. You didn't like like Run Fat Boy Run, the David (laughs) Trimmer movie? That's a Trimmer original. I never, never saw it. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't see it. Didn't see the, the run fat boy run, but yeah, I don't know. I just feel like I haven't seen him do very much other than like, you know, Star Trek and, um, mission impossible. And where I just don't, I don't like, I don't get to feel like he's a part of it in the same way that he's been a part of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, I'm not sure how you return to this kind of thing. Cause like this really, uh, the, the, in the interviews, they refer to the world's end as Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg's final thoughts on this topic, you know? Yeah. And I agree that they've, they, I think they plumbed the depths of that about as far as it can go. Well, I, I think like if you were to not think about 
like I, th- I feel like you're sort of taking a very world end attitude towards his career. Like he doesn't need to redo this anymore. He can just move forward and do something new and exciting. And I don't want to see him do this again. I just, it's like, I just don't feel, I feel like trying to recreate well, who is he in Star Trek? Scotty. watching him try to be a different actor is sort of boring and he's not terrible in mission impossible he's good he's great in mission impossible what are you talking about i just don't feel like he has i don't feel the depth of his character i feel like he's doing a great job being a second he's playing level in a tom cruise movie yeah simon Pegg is not gonna soak up the screen in a tom cruise vehicle we're not disagreeing i'm just saying it's a little sad that all i have like he's really his career hasn't taken off where he's been the like I don't get to sink my teeth into a Simon okay, Pegg movie. He's like, in and three I, iconic films of this century. He's yes. now a supporting character in the largest action franchise ever, and Josh, I think likely the best. I, just, I mean, you're complaining just about something chill. like chill, chill. Don't it. tell me to chill. Just I'm fucking... the executive producer of the show. I'll act how I want to act. That's what I've learned from you know we're life in media, this, baby. We're saying the same thing. I love him. This like this is exciting acting to me, and it's like I feel like to compare it to other comedies, like if scary movies. Say we did it in the Shaun of the Dead comparison. Like this is another level of comedy, and I love the way he acts. And I'm just a little bit sad that I, he and Nick Frost never like really became superstars, where I could see them in other kinds of movies and see them uh, every you other like year. Paul, <laughs> shut up. You didn't enjoy Paul, a movie that everyone remembers and saw. Do you know what's about up the next? alien, Paul? Do, do you know what we're doing next? Hold on, I just want to slow down for a minute. Paul, yes, I'm sorry. Paul. Simon Pegg's had a very successful career. He's had a very successful career, going from star of a cult sitcom to a beloved supporting Hollywood actor. He's doing fine. Um, him and Edgar Wright are young men, relatively speaking. They have lots of time to reconnect and do something else. I, I would be very surprised if they never work together again. Let's just enjoy what we have. You know, it's fine. That's fine. And you know what? I just, I'm on his page. I saw that he was in, he stars in two movies, one from 2019 called Lost Transmissions, one from 2020 called Inheritance. So you know what? Maybe I should stop fucking whining and go see this shit. I, I'm, what I'm trying to say is I don't think of all people, Simon Pegg is probably thrilled with his career. I think Josh, he's fine. you're misunderstanding. I, I preempted this saying he's rich. He loves what he's doing. He gets to be in Star Wars movies, Star Trek movies. He gets to be in Mission Impossible movies. Those all sound very fun for him. I am missing seeing him do something that I think is has depth to his character, where he's not the third build or fifth build or tenth build. I just want to see a Simon Pegg movie. That's all I ask. So coming up for uh, Edgar Wright, we've got Last Night in Soho, which is supposed to come out in 2021. Right. And also Shadows, which uh, is appropriately shadowy. I have no idea what it's about. A plot kept under wraps. It's supposed to be animated. Hmm. Interesting stuff there. I haven't heard about that one. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'm excited for more Edgar Wright. He absolutely rules. And uh, Baby Driver, we may not like it, but it was a big hit for him. I think it's as easily his most successful film. And, you know, uh, it's yeah, kind of I'm insane. Very... For his full-length movies, the hits are – the consistency is pretty insane. Yeah. And I want to be clear, you know, you might have taken my last couple of statements as being uh, mad at Simon Pegg. I'm not mad at Simon Pegg. Uh, you might take my hatred for Baby Driver as I'm mad at Edgar Wright and don't want to see any more of his movies. I, I love you, Edgar. I give you chef's kiss. Uh, chef's kiss. You know. Uh, I saw it. I don't. I, I'm excited to see Last Night in Soho, especially 
given that I won't go through the whole theory again because I read a lot of IMDb stuff, but he's got a co-screenwriter again. So he's not left alone, and I'm I'm sort of comforted by the fact that he has a partner again. Well, I'm sad to leave the Cornettoverse. I love these movies. Uh, they're so goddamn good. If you haven't seen them, I cannot recommend them enough. They're so they're, – they're really rewatchable. You can revisit them time and time again. Getting older, they're great to grow up with. And, you know, it's like what? Like a, a essentially a decade-long saga from Sean in 2004 to The World's End in 2013. And you really feel like they use every minute of that time to create increasingly complex, compelling, and interesting cinema. And so we bid a fond farewell to the Cornellaverse. Charles, what is next for us on the beloved – podcast show when will it end do you know i have no idea do you remember never am i about to be sad or happy i don't know um i'll give you the initials okay hsm i don't know what that is okay i'll give you the next clue hsm hsm stands for we were talking about regression going back to where you went to Uh uh-oh this can't be good what is it? High School Musical. We're doing High School Musical? <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you, I can tell you one fiancé of mine who's going to be ecstatic about this. Jesus uh-huh, Christ. Maybe. How many are those? I think just three. Just three. <laughs> and then as of right now, we have a big, uh, what, eight-week gap between High School Musical and... Do you want me to say it now or do you want me to leave that as a little secret for the rest of them? Let's let's not blow it now. We have no reason to. That's crazy. Okay. Well, okay, we God. do High have school to... musical. Dios mios. Well, I, that's I haven't seen any of them. I hate musicals as we found out after me watching Grease. Uh so this is probably going to be a nightmare, but hey, you never know. Isn't it Zac Efron? This is yes, this is the the uh the series that drove Zac Efron to the horrifyingly muscular man we know today. And muscles are scary. Well, he's he's the kind of guy who's so jacked that it's like uncomfortable to look at. Like I saw, I'm one of the eight people who saw Baywatch, which was fine for the record. Um, he did but get in, jacked for that. Terrifyingly jacked, like like w- w- werewolf jacked. But look, we can talk about jacking and and wolf and wolf Efron as much as we want. Um, any final thoughts on the Cornettoverse before we say fully goodbye? Mm, no, I think just one last chef's one last chef's kiss. Can you get it on mic really good? Yeah. Okay, ready? Should I, should I, I'm going to graze the mic with my fingers. And it's, That's good. Okay. Everyone, will see you in the High School Musical verse. And here it is. One final chef's kiss for Edgy Wright.